Like, it's hard. It's hard to get out of the system. Like, and I, like, if you talk to just any, anybody in the streets that's going through the system, like, they'll tell you it's meant to, it feels like it's to, meant to keep you down. If people are putting forth the effort, then I would, I would give them a chance. Or like, even get them court ordered to a program that will help them come up and give them the tools they need. Like, cause I know, I know if I wasn't ever court ordered to go to therapy, I would have never went. And it was one of the best decisions or best things that has ever happened. This is season two, episode two of the Smart Justice Podcast. Those who are sinking. Crime and punishment are hot topics. Are there solutions different than what we're hearing about at a national level? They're trying to stop that cycle so that we don't see their children, they don't see them in juvenile court, we don't see them headed to circuit court. We give someone a traffic ticket and they're scared, they can't pay that ticket, and what they do, they don't show up for court. They think it's gonna go away, well it doesn't go away. It's not about the court bringing in that money, it's about helping that person avoid this kind of problem in the future. There is a different way to approach justice that has better return on investment. The bad people need to be in jail and stay there. Folks that, that are suffering from just social ills, they don't need to be here. That seems to strengthen both law enforcement and courts and tie that together with community resources. I think that's what makes it worthwhile, that little bit of extra time you spend working on it. If you can't do a little mercy when you're here, then it's not worth being here. And then track the impact to communities and better outcomes. And we're calling this approach Smart Justice. Smart Justice is a work of Restore Hope and partner organizations. Restore Hope is a software and services organization that helps communities achieve better outcomes for justice and child welfare efforts. Smart Justice is focused on optimizing the system by improving the relationships among its parts. In this season of Smart Justice, we're going upstream to see how to assist people out of the justice system before they get too deep. But how does that work for the people needing the help? Paul Chapman, Director of Restore Hope. Hey, in this episode of the Smart Justice Podcast, we're going to have the opportunity to hear from many clients who were assisted um, in district court and helping them deal with their issues. And so we're here with Dana Baker. Uh, Dana is the coordinator for 100 Families in White County. But Dana, you actually started kind of all this work with Restore Hope by being um, the one who helped Judge Derrick in White County set up community diversion programs uh, in district court there. How long ago was that? Five years, the first of November. Five years, uh, so, yeah. and, and now you're no longer in the court, but yeah. uh, you have staff that are in the court on a regular basis We now. do, we have a case manager in every district courtroom in White County. Just, you know, what's your reflection on the opportunity that district courts provide to, to actually meet and help people? One thing I think that has really made a profound impact on what I even do now is just watching people receive the opportunity to connect to services. Often I think that they haven't known where to turn. 
um, what the first steps would be. Would they have everything they need? It's sometimes it's scary to approach uh, mental health um, services or recovery. Um, they don't know what that looks like. And that, so to have someone that's going to connect them to those resources, make sure that they get those appointments with the appropriate place um, and help them just navigate what it means to make that first step has been really impactful and even what I do now in White County. Just removing everything that has kept them from getting those services before and making sure that it works. Tracy Davidson connected with 100 families in district court. I had had an open DCFS case. Uh, I had recently had gotten a DWI, went to court with Judge Derrick, and he appointed me to 100 families. What was the conversation like as you just sitting there in court having the conversation? Why in the world did you decide to work with them? When they see you, they see something in you immediately, and it gives you reassurance in yourself and they just tell you, you know, how they can work with you to build yourself and build your future for where you're trying to go instead of just trying to set you more and more back. What, what was that like? You're in court and you've got a DCFS case. I would imagine that'd be a little overwhelming. It was. Um, working with them was a breath of fresh air, really. It was like you always had someone on your side. It was like having family without having family. Um, they were always there to help you, remind you of things or give you resources that you didn't know about or in certain situations plug you in, you know, just whatever you needed, they were there. They're pretty much your personal cheerleader, like just encouragement to keep going and always trying to find a solution to help. and plug you into great resources, really. What resources did you get connected with? I went to college through Career Pathways and used... Um, what are you studying? Uh, I studied diesel technologies. I graduated in May. I currently attend for my Associates of Applied Science and Business Technologies. Let's talk details um, around what actually happens in court. I mean, are, are you or your folks, are they actually in the courtroom? or I, And sure. what do you do when you're in the courtroom? So um, all of our, all the district courtrooms have a case manager that works with 100 families. Um, the Alternative Sentencing Community Diversion Program now is under the umbrella of 100 families. Um, every one of the district courtrooms and every court that meets every week the case manager is there. They are um, in front of the wall. They're right there with the attorneys, with the uh, with uh, uh, probation officers. They're right there on the front lines. And so you've developed kind of the relationship. Y'all all know each other. Yes. and It's become really a team between um, even the bailiffs and the jailers and all those that are involved in the proceedings every day of court. Our team is right there in the front, um, accessible to the judge, accessible to the prosecutor, um, or even to the public defender if they want to talk about a client. And so kind of what happens is every litigant will come up to the podium and the judge looks at their charges and says, do you have kids under 18, which is one of the determinants that we have to have for our program. And then he says, go over and talk to 100 families. I think they might have some ways they can help. 
And at that point, the client sits down with the case manager, they ask a few questions, explain what we do, explain how it can benefit them for the rest of their life, and then explain how it can benefit them in the courtroom. So what is that conversation like? Let's say that that I just came over, I'm nervous, and the judge said, come come talk to you. So the first thing we do is sometimes they're, they're afraid because the judge just says, hey, do you have kids? And so sometimes we have that scares them. And so we have to say, this is not about your kids. They're scared of what? The DHS is going to be involved because he's asked about their children. And so we just explain, hey, it's just, we have to make sure you have kids. That's how we're funded. Um, But it's not about your kids. This is about your recovery, um, your uh, criminal issues that you have going on, mental health issues that you may have going on. We want to help you. We want to support you and advocate for you. Um, but we want to be able to connect you to resources that are going to make a difference. If you accept that help, the judge is going to bring you back up to the podium today. He's going to reset your case for four to six months. He's going to see you again. I'll be here with you and we'll report to the the judge what you did in that six months. Um, It just kind of calms them down, helps them understand what's happening. And then if they look like or they feel like that's something they might want, then the case manager goes into more detail. What's your substance abuse history? Um, I see that some of your charges are possession charges. I see it's your second possession charge. Um, I think so, so the case manager has the docket and absolutely. is able to... Even before the court starts, we're able to look through that docket and know who some good clients would be. Someone that we might need to meet before we leave there that day. Someone who has several uh, they're on several dockets um they may be in a different city next week as well and so we know this is a history that they have they probably would benefit from not only the services but community diversion um, opportunities and so we make the best connection that we can with the charges that we know um will have high high sentencing lots of jail time high fines where it's going to be um, something to entice them to try therapy for the first time or to try substance abuse services for the first time. Chase Steelman was facing a number of charges and fines related to his history with addiction. I had been battling a meth addiction for some time. Um, It had actually started with opiates. And, uh, you know, when they got harder to find, it just blossomed from there. so I had been in and out of jail, running from the law for like seven years, and I hadn't had a driver's license in seven years. And you look over your shoulder everywhere you go, you second guess anywhere you're gonna go, even if it's for your children or your wife, it doesn't matter. You're always worried about, well, what if this is the time? Chase sought the help of 100 families and found an eyeline case manager, Jamie Zorane, who helped guide him through the process of the system and working with his probation officer. It was a slow process for me. Like I said, I had seven warrants. We knocked out a couple of them. And then um, at that point, I couldn't get any further because my felony was holding me back. And so it really took a leap of faith on my part at that point because I had had some trouble with um, my probation officer and everything in the past. And so when, I guess just whenever I went and did it, I was so nervous, so scared. And she was like, don't be, everything's gonna be fine. She was never negative, not once. Lo and behold, here I am. And so, well, what was that like when you were going to your probation officer? You know, uh, well, the first time it, it was nerve-wracking. You know, because he 
if he wanted to, he could have locked me back up no matter how clean or how good I was doing. It was his, his deal. And so when I met him, I took my drug test and I passed, you know, everything went from there. That first time, you know, he was a little standoffish, but after that, he's been really cool. And so he just wants me to do right, and I see that. I used to blame them back then, and but I could see it was me, not them. Yeah, so what made you kind of take that leap of faith almost to, to go and... Well, when I was in my addiction, um, I lost my children. They went to live with my, my wife's grandparents, and um, once I got clean. We started getting visitation back, and they come and they started living with us, or not living with us, staying with us on the weekends. And then so I talked to Jamie. I was like, look, we want our kids home. And so at that point, I had to get, you know, on a roll with it. And once I started, though, I didn't stop. It was scary and I hated it, but I just blowed, you know, right through it. Because it was better to do it that way, because if I wouldn't have, I could have gotten, I don't know, half of them took care of, got picked up on one, and right back in there with new charges. And so uh, you know, that, that was the biggest kicker, you know, getting me to start it. Tell people like Chase, 100 family caseworkers in the court, look for opportunities to meet people before court is in session. So you get the docket before court, and you're doing kind of homework, you're doing prep work. Yes. And so kind of talk us through what, okay. what, what the docket looks like. So each of the court clerks mails us the dockets way ahead of time. The case manager in the office will look over that. She'll first look for clients that are already in our program that have a court date. She'll let them know they have a court date um, coming up and then she'll make notes they've graduated. They haven't shown up. They need a little more time. Can we set this out four to six weeks? Something like that. So those are clients that are already established. We use HelpArc, our case management system, to keep up with all those notes. Um, and then the second thing we do is we look to see who we might be meeting in court that day. We're looking for charges like possession of controlled substances, possession of drug paraphernalia, a lot of failure to pay. It means that they have a history of, for some reason, they may be fearful to come back to court to, to make a payment arrangement. They may have um, a failure to appear, several of those. Um, if they show up that day, we wanna help them understand how making better decisions in the court, even showing up to court, would benefit them in the future, and they often need mental health and substance abuse. When, when someone gets a, a failure to appear, mm -hmm. then what happens once you have a, an FTA? Sure, failure to appear and failure to pay are basically gonna have the same charges and the same sentences. Um, those things are gonna snowball on you and you're gonna be out of control. You're gonna own a lot of money. You're gonna have a lot of jail time you have to serve. Um, and if we can stop some of those um, and help them to address that head on and we're in the courtroom to advocate and support them um, as they do address the judge um, and help explain them, help explain to them what's happened, why this is all snowballed. Um, and they really are ready to kind of conquer it more. When we lay it out in a simple way, they're not so afraid to, to approach the judge the next time. We also look for things like probation violations. Um, if they have a probation violation, same thing, helping them understand why they got that. What are you trying to avoid? Let's get reconnected to your probation officer. Let's sit down together with him. Um, let's make a plan. 
and get the substance abuse and mental health services that you need. Makala Coates found the redirection she needed through her connection with 100 families. I had just caught a slew of charges. Um, I was looking at six years in the penitentiary and I lost my job because I was locked up. Um, I lost my driver's license. I had just sold my car just so I could pay the bills. What motivated you to get out? And Because that was a pretty proactive step. A lot of times when, when folks are kind of under the gun like you were, um, it just makes you want to curl up and... You can't do that. Hide. You can't do that. I, I mean, like, your problems are still going to be there at the end of the day. It's kind of like when you go and get high. You're trying to escape something. You're trying to escape reality. But when you come down from the high, everything's still going to be there, if not worse, because you don't know what you done screwed up when you was high, because you didn't care. You had no emotions for anybody. And like, if I can go that hard in the streets, I can go that hard sober, if not plus some, you know? Like, my son is my world. Like, and I, I knew like, if I didn't get my, my life together, I was gonna lose full custody. I was gonna lose every right to the state of Arkansas. You had a whole bunch of misdemeanor crimes. And, yeah. Uh, you had a suspension or? Yeah, I got my driver's license suspended. So when you get pulled over, I got charged with a DWI, driving while intoxicated, on drugs. For that first year of sobriety and like that first year, like I worked two jobs just to pay the bills and pay my fines. Like I had guidance from 100 families, like through the whole thing. Um, Anytime, like, I felt down, like, I knew I could go and talk to them, like, get, get some solid advice. Um, I was able to do a lot of my community service up there at 100 Families. So you got your driver's license back? Yes. Yes, I got my driver's license back. Are you, uh, do you owe any more on fees and fines? Everything's paid off. I got it all paid off within the first year. So let's talk, Dana, just as taking the devil's advocate role here. If, um, why couldn't the client just, you know, ad address their issues? Why do we need to have a case manager? Can't someone just fix that? Sure. So I get asked this question a lot, but um, I feel like we're changing the whole mindset in our community where people are more aware of all of the obstacles that revolve around that. So in order for someone to apply for any public assistance, whether it's for housing, whether it's for SNAP, or it's even... Um, What's SNAP for those that don't Food have... stamps, okay. uh, supplemental yep. nutrition program. So any of these, of these resources, even if it's um, short-term housing into a homeless shelter, they're going to have to have a form of ID. They need a state-issued ID, a birth certificate, um, social security card and often our clients are coming out of jail they don't know where those documents are um, so even if they had those it's still hard to access those uh, services but that's where we start we start at the ground level what are you going to have to have before you can move on to the next thing so we're helping them meet, address every single barrier 
Um, they don't know which therapist is best. They've heard about a therapist, but it might have been at a Celebrate Recovery program where they heard about it. Who are they? Where do they work? What's the phone number? Do I qualify? Is that what I need? Is it inpatient? Is it outpatient? Is it going to cost me money? Do, if, do I have to go inpatient and leave my kids? Who's going to watch my kids? So let's just talk through everything that could prevent them to being connected to those resources. Oftentimes, the paperwork is overwhelming. Oftentimes, a lot of these programs want you to apply online. Our clients don't have computers, laptops, Wi-Fi access. Mm -hmm. And so helping them to access this, and we don't work harder than our clients. We just remove the obstacles. I'm not gonna sit there and fill out a 45-page um, housing application for them but I am gonna either hand it to them in paper mm -hmm. or hand them a laptop in our office with our Wi-Fi and help them to fill that out. And then I'm gonna make a note in Hope Art to the care team member and say, application mailed, application uh, submitted, now what? These are the things that your parent helps you with, your big sister helps you with, your best friend helps you with, your spouse helps you with. Our families don't have those traditional support methods, so they have not been taught by a parent about how to apply for those things. They knew their parents had those, They knew, but they also knew it was frustrating and that sometimes their parents' snap was cut off or they sometimes were homeless themselves, but how did they get out of that? They didn't get out of it. They never watched their parents successfully navigate that. And so for us to support and navigate that with them is all that makes the difference. Uh, Dana, we've talked about Hope Arc and, and the software that you're making notes in. Let's just talk a little bit about uh, what Hope Arc is. Sure. Hope Arc is a collective impact case management system that Restore Hope uses. Um, it I call it Social Work Facebook. It's just a real, it's a running story of what is going on in our clients' lives, positive and negative. And within that case management system, you have a care team. So not only are they being connected to mental health and substance abuse providers, but as they stabilize in those two areas, we're adding on education partners, employment partners, parenting centers, housing partners. We're adding on financial uh, planners, people that help them make a budget. So, and these people, as they're added on, actually are on the case. They and are. so that's the Facebook part is that's, you're able to communicate. Yeah, so those people are, um, my job as the coordinator is to make sure that in all 14 of the areas that we serve families in, the 14 social determinants of health, that we have multiple partners in our county that are serving those families in those areas. So um, if so, they're on the case management system. They're trained in there. It's uh, in the system how to use the system. Um, they receive a notification via email every time they're added to a care team. It's almost instant that they can connect to a family. So let, let's talk about that, uh, those social determinants of health. That's an assessment that, that y'all do. Sure. What does that assessment look like? So this assessment that's in 14 crisis areas that's built into the Hope Arc system, um, we ask specific questions in all 14 areas. For instance, with housing, we're asking, where are you sleeping today? Are you sleeping on a couch? Are you sleeping outside? And so if they are in crisis in housing, they're homeless or they're couch surfing, then they're rated at a one. We immediately add a care team partner, whether it's a homeless shelter or um, the local uh, homeless tent city. And so we're adding partners based on the level of need. I have partners from one all the way up to five in okay. all 14 So that's the areas. spectrum. Yes. And I would imagine that that could be fluid. 
in the way that y'all are providing services is someone could could reach stability, but then something could happen and, right. and you could fall back into crisis. So all of those questions that I just mentioned about housing, those are asked again every month. Okay. So a client may be um, renting a house with a friend, and so they're about at a three or a four, and then they get into an argument or they lose their lease or their friend loses their job, so they lose their house. So next month they're gonna be at a one again. Mm. So we're constantly looking at how their lives are changing, their situations are changing in all 14 of those crisis areas. And a lot of those, a lot of times those things will snowball. They've lost their job, then they're gonna lose their house, and then they're gonna lose their kids. And so if we're readdressing these things every month, we're able to stay on top of things. In White County, how many clients are you currently serving? We're currently serving between 280 and 320. It fluctuates, um, but that's been the average this year. And how long does the client stay with you? Oh my goodness, I don't really know the answer to that. I know um, we don't dismiss them unless we can't contact them. So they can stay in the program as long as they want our services. Um, a lot of families will actually go before the judge in alternative sentencing programs and graduate the program, but then they'll say to the judge, Your Honor, I know that you're graduating me today. I won't see you anymore, but I'm gonna stick with 100 families. And so. The more they stabilize and the more they're able to address mental health and substance issues, then the more um, they're ready to receive education opportunities, better employment opportunities, um, getting some of those driver's license issues addressed, saving up money to buy a car, getting better housing. We want to continue to work with them as long as we can to bring them to career. Career is money in the bank, buying a house off of all public assistance. So to me, that's three to four years or more um, from crisis to stability. So I had seven warrants. I have none. All of them are gone. Um, thank you. Uh, I have, I've went to six court dates in the last two months. Um, I have two more to go, one this month and then one after the first of the year. And as long as when I go to the, the one at the first of the year is my felony one. And as long as I can make the judge happy, then he should just reinstate my probation, which according to my probation officer, I'm well on my way of doing that. I'm making the payments, I'm visiting him once a month, passing all my drug tests and all of that. I've got a job, we've got a house, our kids are back home full time. You know, so life has really changed and I couldn't be more grateful. I've graduated welding school. I went through CIC. I signed up at 100 Families and went through CIC and got my welding. Um, which I learned how to stick weld there and I've learned how to make weld on the job. Why in the world did you want to go to welding school? Well after you so I was in the medical field for several years and I was in the process of starting to get my paramedic and when you catch drug felony charges you cannot work in the medical field as long as that is on your record. And so I sat back and I was reevaluating everything. And I grew up around welders. Like my dad's a welder, my uncle's a welder, my brother's a welder. And I was like, you know what, they make good money. And so I was like, I'm gonna do it, I'm gonna learn. My dad was completely against it. 
He's like, no, I don't want that for my daughter. That's a rough lifestyle. I was like, hmm. well, you also don't want a child to be a drug addict. So here we are. <laughs> here we are. And this is what we are going to go for. Like, and now I am making more money than I ever thought I would, especially like a year ago, two years ago. Like, I never thought I would be where I'm at today. Like, I'm, I'm actually building my own house. I bought a piece of property, building, like, I've put in electricity, the sewer, the water. And we're building the house, like me and my dad, we're building it ourselves. So when you're offering help and someone wants it, you're in the court and you make an appointment for them, what, how many actually keep the appointment? We're looking at about 75% right now. Um, we often will call and remind them, hey, you've got an appointment coming up. Mm -hmm. We'll give them another opportunity if they need to reschedule that. But we're at about 75%. And of those that actually, you know, start down the road, they get the full assessment and you're connecting them, how many actually satisfy their outstanding legal obligations? I would say we're probably at the same amount. About 75% of those that of start. Of those that start, complete. yeah. It may, there may be some, we call them false starts. Um, they may slip back for a little while, they may have some fears, or they may get put in jail somewhere else on another charge. And so there are some false starts, um, but we just try to continue to reconnect them and we don't give up until they've made that, that first attempt. You know, just watching um, y'all in White County and uh, what's going on in both Sebastian and Crawford counties, uh, where we are seeing this community diversion too, I kind of think of it as a, um, an investment we're making to prevent mm -hmm you know, more, much more expensive and much more socially costly things like kids going into foster care, uh, parents going into jail and or prison. Um, what, you know, just tell me what your experience has been over the past five years with, specifically with that as these are interventions kind of upstream. We'll never know how many cases we've prevented, um, foster care cases we've prevented, but I do know that there have been a lot of families that have come in that have had investigations or protective services cases and um, we're able to intervene on the beginning um, of those proceedings and just kind of help them again navigate that what does that mean when DHS shows up at your door what's going to happen next and so we're able to kind of walk through that with them as well and then to let DCFS know through the use of Hope Park and the care team um, they are connecting to these services they have um, started substance abuse classes they have been going to parenting classes and so Again, the quick um, connection to resources, I think, is what makes the difference. Okay, so the court and the prosecutor, uh, y'all are all working together. This, Absolutely. There, is there any opposition to this, or is there kind of consensus on? Well, you know, I had to get the buy-in in the beginning, so the judge agreed um, to let us come into the courtroom. Um, several people were skeptical years ago. I would imagine prosecutor prosecutors were be... skeptical, police officers were skeptical, mm -hmm. police chiefs were skeptical in the beginning. They um, didn't understand what we were trying to accomplish. Um, but as they've sat there and been um, silent witnesses to what's happened with our clients, they've watched as they have completed programs they're passing drug screens. They've been a witness to people that have been in these courts for years. They see it working. They see it working. And so now when they call us to make a referral 
or the, we had a police chief bring someone to us a few weeks ago who wouldn't have done that four years ago. Um, they really have watched it work. They had to get the buy-in for sure and, and see it actually happen in lives of people that they were dealing with on the streets. Sometimes they had dealt with their parents and grandparents mm-hmm. as well. And so now they're seeing those lives change through an opportunity they got in a courtroom when they weren't expecting it. And so I cannot think of anyone, honestly, in White County right now that is not on board. So uh, what would your message then be to a community that's that's looking at, um, kind of, they're considering this? Um, what, what would your message be to the judge, the police chief, to the nonprofits that are there? What's to lose? Um, you can only gain um, a stronger community and you can only have better outcomes when you all work together. And I don't think there's anything to lose here. What would you say to, to someone maybe that's really struggling right now? Um, kids that are at home and, and um, maybe they have a speeding ticket they didn't pay and, and they're starting to look at, they're starting to lose hope. Um, do you have, what would you say to them? To definitely reach out to 100 families. They have a lot of resources. I can't tell you how many times I've sent people to 100 families, but definitely reach out. Uh, talk to the courts if you can't talk to anybody else. I know it gets overwhelming sometimes and it feels like they don't listen, but as long as you're persistent, if, if you don't speak, they're not gonna hear you. So especially, unless you've got the drive to get out of it, when you've got that many fines, 10,000 plus fines, and then you've got your bills and you're a single mom, you've got to take care of the kids, and you only are able to obtain a minimum wage job, like, that's a lot of stress. Like. When, when you're in that situation, it's great to have other, uh, other outlets, like other options. That way you are succeeding. You feel like you're succeeding and you're getting somewhere. And like that, that mistake you made isn't gonna define who you are. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Smart Justice. Join us next episode as we look at the impact of sentencing alternatives from the perspective of the law and the lawyers. Should be interesting. See you then. Thanks to our guests, Dana Baker, Tracy Davidson, Chase Stillman, and Michaela Coates. And thanks to Arkansas Churches for Life for sponsoring. Musical credits include Lonely Company by Anthony Catacoli. Tangles by Aaron Sprinkle, Light the Way by Ian Koloski, Better Than I Was Yesterday by Anthony Catacoli, and Holy Ground by Cody Martin. Music is licensed through soundstripe.com. Smart Justice is a work of Restore Hope. Please consider helping us produce more work like this by becoming a sponsor at www.smartjustice.org. Thank you again.